0: Hi, hey folks, it's Alex from the pre Light podcast team and I'm here today with the fabulous Nat Reeve. Um, Nat Reeve is a novelist and researcher at Royal Holloway uh, on the cusp of submitting their AHRC funded PhD queer reading the work of Elizabeth Siddle. Their debut novel Nettle Black, a queer neo-Victorian adventure featuring a runaway heir, s crime-solving misfits, <laughs> cravats and a ferret, which is interesting. I can't wait to hear about that one, was published in 2022 by Cypher Press and the sequel following 2024. Academical publications about SIDL can be found in Word and Image uh, and the 2022 Pre-Raphaelite Sisters Collection. Nat teaches English and creative writing at Royal Holloway and was the Pre-Raphaelite Fellow at the University of Delaware and the Delaware Art Museum in 2020 to 2021. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us today, Nat. It's so good to catch up with you after last seeing you at Babs.
1: Yes, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here. And no, yes, it's so. Lovely to see you at Babs and to hear about your research as well.
0: Oh, well, I've, we'll save that for another episode, shall we? But <laughs> today's all about you, so we're going to talk all about your amazing things and what you're getting up to because you're a busy bee as usual. Uh, so uh, let's get started then. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about, more about your research and your PhD journey so far?
1: Okay, yeah. So um, my PhD is, as you've heard, queer reading the work of Elizabeth Siddle, and it's basically a kind of. It incorporates this theoretical framework of queer theory, the practice of queer reading, um, kind of unusual combinations of artists, practitioners, not all of them necessarily pre-Raphaelite and archival research to just delve into works, artworks and poems by Elizabeth Siddle, um, who I imagine will probably have already been discussed. Like, do I need to summarise who Siddle is or are we good on the Siddle content? Uh,
0: You can give just a very brief bio, uh, but I imagine our listeners will have a bit of an idea of who she is. But give us a brief bio anyway.
1: Okay, great. So Siddle is a pre-Raphaelite artist and poet, um, 1829 to 1862, and she mostly works in quite a medievalist small style in terms of like painting size Uh, she often depicts literary subjects Um, her poems are exciting and kind of fragmented and have fairly recently I think in 2018 come out in a critical edition by Serena Trowbridge which I think she's Alex's supervisor so yes she is shout out to Serena um, probably (laughs) (laughs) but that edition you know saved my life in many ways so definitely wanted to shout it out um yeah Siddle is a fascinating and interesting artist and poet to study she what I found particularly interesting and what led me to that kind of queer theory queer reading framework was this pattern that I was noticing in Siddle's work a continual sort of sense of disruption and disruptiveness and taking something and producing a kind of queer reading of it. So I say that I am queer reading Elizabeth Siddle, but I'm kind of basing that methodology on how I see Siddle as reading the literary subjects that she then depicts. So like she will do illustrations for a ballad or a kind of reworking of a scene from a poem in pictorial form. Or her poems will include a lot of dense kind of intertextual allusions to, again, mostly ballads, mostly medieval stuff, mostly creepy supernatural stuff. Um, So, yeah, that's that's a kind of summary of how I got to this methodology, sort of, because initially when I started my PhD, um, I hadn't intended to go into it as a queer reading. And in, I just realised that I needed some kind of way to conceptualise what I was finding in siddell's work and this kind of disruptive trend. And that also spoke to me because obviously I'm a queer person and I'm using queer, I should clarify, in the kind of broadest critical sense of the word, which is sometimes kind of a sort of disruptiveness Related to gender and sexuality, it's sometimes just a general sense of chaos and the deviation from norms and decentering of established categories or arrangements. So I kind of run the full gamut of definitions of this word queer in the way that I look at Siddell's work. Does That's that seem- uh,
0: honestly so interesting. I think it's a really innov- innovative way of looking at it. And I find okay. your research in particular very original. Um, No one has ever heard of this style or this framework before, Um, especially in the context of Siddle um, and, you know, and her poetry and her art as well. I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it. How is the actual PhD in itself, Uh, as I introduced in the, you know, in in the introduction, your very near submission? How has the whole process been?
1: Okay, so uh, two things. Firstly, I should clarify that I did, um, there is, there is someone else who has done queer reading in the concept of Siddle before, Louise Tonder, but she's done it in the concept of queer reading Siddle's myths, so kind of that mythologized Ah. persona, the the body with the hair in the coffin, all that kind of mythological stuff, and it's a very conceptual framework based on Siddle as a persona, and I wanted to apply that framework and kind of deepen it with some more queer theory and bring it onto Siddle's work rather than her life. Yeah, that's awesome. So that's the thing. Um, PhD, <laughs> yes. Um, I am, hopefully, I'm saying this to hold myself accountable. At the time of recording, <laughs> I should be submitting the PhD within a month.
0: That so is so I'm exciting.
1: Very close to the end of this phase. It's all feeling very real. The examiners have been picked the the submission deadline is obviously a thing I've sent in the forms so yeah I'm I'm in that last slightly manic stage I'm also doing a lot of teaching and kind of other projects at the moment as well so it, everything is just mania right now mm-hmm. basically well I did say to our
0: listeners that you were a busy bee and I think you've uh, I think you've illustrated that really well <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, good luck with the submission. I mean, Thank there's you. no doubt that you'll absolutely smash it. But good luck with it anyway. Thank you um, so much. It's very reassuring to hear. Okay, so let's talk about um your research into queer reading, Syd. Then, so what do you think is the significance of this research? Like, what is the significance of considering like queer reading with prairiephilitism as a whole? Maybe do, do you think that it is uh, an important way to go about analyzing prairiephile art? Do you think?
1: Yes, I think there should be a diversification of approaches to not just Siddle, but, you know, pre-Raphaelite art and poetry in general. And something that I had particularly found um, when doing my kind of prior research into Siddle and how other people have written about Siddle which is quite lovely in itself, because we always think of Siddle as this kind of neglected pre-Raphaelite figure, but actually she has quite a substantial critical field now. And that's really Mm -hmm. exciting to think that she has received so much attention. And like, you know, I'm so grateful to that research for being done and for kind of popularizing Siddle and bringing her into this position of being seriously considered as a practitioner, which was not always the case. Um, But one thing that I kept coming up against in previous criticism of Siddle is that it tends to be to I'm, I'm quoting my friend and fabulous academic Melissa Gustin here binary heterosexual cis modes of visualization so it's it's very much in terms of what Siddle can tell us about women's subjectivity what Siddle can tell us about kind of answering back from the sisters perspective to the pre-Raphaelite brothers and that sort of framing and I don't think that's wrong and I think that's a useful way of considering it I just think there should be other ways as well because I I don't know where I fit in terms of intervening in that kind of critical field because I'm I'm transmasculine I'm non-binary I don't fit into that binary setup and I thought it would be important and interesting to consider Siddle's work somewhat in isolation from that and to see what came up. And actually, I was surprised by the extent to which, for example, almost all of Siddle's poems are not written from a performatively gendered perspective. And I've seen that talked about really interestingly, I think by Serena, again, about how that's kind of a subversion of the fixation with kind of pre-Raphaelite women's bodies and faces and so they're disembodying them and I wanted to take that one step further and ask well if they don't have a I mean I'm not saying that you know bodies have anything to do with gender obviously but like if they don't have a body then why are we assuming they're female at all because they're not absolutely absolutely so this kind of led me down this rabbit hole of thinking what would happen if I just sort of consciously suspended that useful but also in some ways quite limited framework Mm -hmm. and thought about the works in a different way and this has resulted in some really interesting really strange stuff when you kind of slightly lighten that focus Um, and I think that is important because otherwise the narratives they're always going to be the same yeah they're always going to be reiterating this story of misogynistic brothers and 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 oppressed sisters and then the sisters rebel against the brothers and now they're proto-feminists and like I can see why all of that is useful but there's also so much more in these works and we are not going to access it if we always assume they have to fit into this framework
0: oh yeah absolutely and I, I think it's really interesting that um how you mentioned that Siddle's poetry there is no you know fixed gender in terms of who is actually speaking like the, yeah. the speaker of the actual poems i've never considered yeah. that before you know reading siddle's poetry i have never even thought about that um so well, at, I- yeah after this i'll tell you now i'm going to pick up serena's book i'm going to read it all with a fresh pair of eyes i think
1: <laughs> well it's an interesting one because there is there is one poem in which the speaker is definitely gendered mm-hmm. as female and that's true love the only one with the title yeah um And there's another poem oh mother open the window wide which has often been assumed to be a woman dying in childbirth and there is I'm kind of on the fence I include it as one that might be gendered but also it's not as explicit as his pale bride in true love (laughs) but also so many of the poems and the ways in which they've read have been the critic has gendered them and often gendered them in a way that is binary and heterosexual so if it's if the speaker is talking about a woman, they are assumed to be a man. And if they are talking about a man, they are assumed to be a woman. And that th- this, this could be complicated in so many ways.
0: It links back to that idea that there is just so much critical assumption with the pre isn't there? There's mm. always, yeah. I mean... Hence, why so much research has been doing on it, you know, has been done on it lately. That there, are, we're trying to subvert and challenge and question these critical assumptions of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, of these models, of these muses, and what they have yeah. stood for for so long. So, yeah. I really do think it is an important part of um, modern-day scholarship. I think we need to ask yeah. the, uh, these questions. I think we need to interrogate these norms. Um, and and that's kind of coinciding with the way that our society is evolving too the way that times are changing as well in Mm. attitudes towards certain things and aspects so it's all good stuff it sounds really really interesting
1: I think it's also important to kind of move away even further another remove from the biographical reading mode of the pre-raphaelites which has been quite damaging for a lot of them but especially Siddle because you know it's it's one remove to say, no, Siddle is kind of intervening in these, these dialogues of, of female representation in the Victorian period. But one remove from that is saying, oh, well, Siddle is writing from her own perspective because she's sad about Rossetti. And like, you want to push away from that sort of mm-hmm. reading the life into the works that has been so prevalent in pre-Raphaelite work, in particular pre-Raphaelite readings. Um, yeah. I don't know if you have any thoughts on kind of why the Pre-Raphaelites are so kind of ripe for this. I, well, I think
0: I think uh, uh, you know the, the the general interest surrounding Pre-Raphaelites for so long hasn't isn't hasn't even necessarily been on their artwork, has it? Um, mm-hmm. it's all been about the scandalous and turbulent love lives of them, the yeah. you know the, the the secret relationships and the affairs and all of the little bits of drama and scandalous gossip that people thrive off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think. That's kind of what centered the interest around pre-Raphaelites, especially when they, you know, when there was that proper critical revival into the 60s going into the, the 1980s into pre-Raphaelites. I think a lot of attention was paid into what they got up to um with each other, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's only been really recently that the artistic contributions to the movement have been properly and thoroughly considered, I think. And
1: yeah.
0: I think as you say, it's just people have kind of had to Bounce off the biographical information because that is essentially what we have grounded ourselves on as researchers for such a long time, mm-hmm. and we're kind of seeing this this uh, evolution in scholarship as well in the in, in the methods in the way that we are addressing the pre in yeah. a sense that we are starting to consider them for their work and consider their actual work and read their work in different ways, um, and yeah. so I've, yeah, I I think we are seeing a critical evolution of the pre just as much as we're seeing a social one
1: yeah um yeah definitely kind of more voices getting added yeah to the exactly like, i am very much not the only person contributing to this movement you've got kind of like research groups like race empire and the pre-raphaelites mm-hmm. and all these different ways of engaging with pre-raphaelite work which are all just kind of happening and yeah. that's a really cool and exciting thing but
0: i also yeah. think it's super exciting i mean when we when uh both of us attended the BAVS conference. There was mm. two whole, um, there was two whole uh, papers, like like sections dedicated to pre raphaelite research, oh, stated nice. pre raphaelite women as well. Which is, yeah. uh, I th- I think the general interest in pre raphaelitism and it, you know it, it really is attracting attention, public attention, mm. yeah. uh, and I think that's really nice to see as well. Just the general interest in pre raphaelitism and you know with this whole podcast, you know. the the plugging of the podcast and reaching out to the public in a completely different way. That's never really been done before. You know, it's kind of just, it's, it's showing how popular the pre raphaelites are becoming uh, and Mm -hmm. how relevant they are.
1: There's that exhibition as well. That's coming up at the Tate, kind of the Rossetti's exhibition. So there's like, yeah, it's all. Yeah. Well, exactly. Exactly.
0: Uh, And especially with the work that's, um, you know, being done over Delaware at the moment and all of those exhibitions speaking Mm. of (laughs) <laughs> I must ask you, <laughs> yes. when we last spoke, you were telling me about your experience in Delaware, when you won the Amy P. Goldman Fellowship. Please tell um, our listeners about that because it sounds absolutely amazing what you got up well, to over there.
1: It was the most fabulous and wonderful thing and very hard one thing, because the reason I say 2020 slash 2021, the fellowship does not last for that long. But basically, I was awarded it for 2020. But obviously, in 2020, I was not (laughs) able to travel to America. so I didn't actually end up going until September 2021 after a year and a half sort of pandemic delay. Crazy. Um, yeah, so that's why I have to kind of call it that. And I know You were there for
0: a whole year.
1: <laughs> I don't know what what my date technically is anymore, but I I was there in 2021 and it was transformative. It was so difficult to get that like with travel restrictions mm-hmm. and applying for a visa and applying for a national interest exception and then emailing the American embassy about how my research about on pre-rafflitism was essential to like the promotion of America's interest or something like that. But, <laughs> That all happened, and I got there, and I mean, I have been promoting it ever since, and I'm promoting it right now, so it's come full circle, and it was just brilliant. Everyone there, Margaretta Frederick, Mark Samuels, Lasner, and and I mean, they're, they're kind of the official heads in mm-hmm. the Delaware Art Museum and the University of Delaware, ret- respectively, for the purposes of the fellowship when I was there. But so many other people as well, like Margaret Stetts, Holly Trossel, Brigham. It was just everybody was so lovely and welcoming and brilliant and had so many interesting things to think Mm -hmm. and say about. And also shout out to Olivia and the the photo shoot that we had with with Max Beerbohm's walking stick.
0: (laughs) I'm not going to ask.
1: <laughs> you can see the pictures in my terrible twitter but anyway <laughs> the, um, the the really brilliant thing about the fellowship was it reminded me and mark in particular reminded me that you are permitted to love what you do mm-hmm. that i had by that point you know there'd been a pandemic i'd had huge research delays i'd had I, I had my covid extension like i hadn't really been able to work on the thesis and i had been losing a lot of passion for it and then i got there and it was just the atmosphere of it sort of allowed me to go yes no i do i do feel passion for what i'm doing and i do kind of i do love engaging with it and just the huge privilege of being there seeing these artworks, you know, mm-hmm. getting to kind of pick up the woeful victory, which is Sidel's last documented artwork, and just kind of carry it around a room. It's
0: <laughs> absolutely much- bonkers. It is worthy to say that they really do have some treasures over there, don't they? Like yeah. some of the stuff yeah. that they have in their collections. I mean, I was trawling through their um their catalogue the other day and I was just thinking yeah. that's absolutely bonkers how much they have.
1: Yeah yeah there is such wonderful wonderful stuff there and you just kind of get loose get let loose with it as a as the pre raphaelite scholar you're just sort of sent in and they say what do you want like what do you want what do you want to do with it how are you going to what do you want to look at and how are you going to use it and then you give a a lecture at the end um, okay your findings and it was brilliant It, it I don't think I could have completed substantial parts of my thesis without it because it just gave me amazing opportunities, archival opportunities, and everyone was so wonderful. And also, while I was there, the Delaware Art Museum were preparing for the 2022 exhibition, I Wake Again, Holly Trussell Brigham on Elizabeth Siddle, which was so contemporary Philadelphia-based artist, Holly Trossel Brigham was... Doing a kind of multimedia response to Siddle's artworks, and it was so cool. Got to meet mm-hmm. Holly, is fabulous, and and see her work in progress as it was at the time, and have all these wonderful chats about kind of how we in the twenty first century can respond to and conceptualize the work that Siddle has created. And yeah, just just the fellowship was was amazing, and it I'm so just amazing.
0: it really does does sound amazing um and especially with the exhibitions that they have going on over there at the moment um it really is a must visit I think for pre-athlete enthusiasts if they can get themselves over there um it honestly is such a worthy visit um I'm saying that to myself because I really do intend on visiting at some point (laughs) um (laughs) so let's finish off then let's talk about this uh you this other projects that you've been going you know that's been going on along the side of your studies and um, because lately I feel that you've kind of had a bit of a transition from academic to author <laughs> are we going to talk about Nettle Black here if you are you alluding
1: to my novels
0: Alex? <laughs> yes I am I'm alluding to your career in writing a novel I mean that's absolutely huge congratulations on that by the way thank you um, so much well. so d- d- Tell us about it. T- tell us about the, the process. Tell us about Nettle Black. Tell us about the mo- like moves going forward. Brilliant. Go for okay.
1: So, um, I have been kind of writing historical novels, chaotic queer historical novels, alongside my academic work for kind of as long as I can remember, certainly as long as I've been doing academic work. I mean, I started writing novels as a small child, but I mean, we're not good novels at the time. But um, I. Basically, I've been working on nettle black since about 2015. And I had never had the sort of time or space to consider it in with the same intensity and focus as I had the academic work. I'd always been encouraged to prioritize, you know, getting the master's, getting the PhD, that sort of thing. And then, of course, the pandemic happened Mm -hmm. and it was terrible. But one thing that it did do was suddenly I couldn't work on the thesis and it, there was this chunk of time when I could sort out Nettle Black and make it good. Uh, well, I say that, I mean, I don't know, to, that's up to the readers, but make it what <laughs> I thought was good. And then I saw that the wonderful UK based independent publishers, Cypher Press, were they had put out an open submissions call and you didn't have to have an agent and I submitted to this very nervously and trepidatiously and then received a response from the publishers within 24 hours asking for the full manuscript and then slightly less than two weeks later I had a two book deal to do that's
0: incredible oh my god how did you
1: react to that well, it was it was a, a fairy tale. I think I fell down the stairs when I got the first <laughs> season. <laughs> that I distinctly remember. Um, That's amazing. And so, yeah, in terms of what Nettle Black is, it's a quite chaotic, epistolary-ish historical novel set in 1893 in a small English town, fictional town, called Dallyangle, And it follows the youngest child in this sort of very Victorian nouveau riche family who have made enormous amounts of money selling a kind of placebo medicine and the family now wants her to marry into the aristocracy but she decides she does not want this you know austin fantasy and runs away and joins a group of local vigilantes who are trying to solve all of the crimes okay. in the town because it doesn't have a police force and it doesn't mm-hmm. want it. and basically spends the whole book hiding there getting up to various queer exploits with other suitably chaotic members of this organization <laughs> the ferret is is a pet ferret who just upsets people
0: in various ways <laughs> in the of the book. i was gonna say when, when uh, I was reading for the introduction I was like "Ferret, hang on did I read that correctly yeah. <laughs> but before you get too much into the novel I really want to give you a chance to actually tell our listeners how they can purchase this oh, gosh, because yes. I'm aware that we don't actually have that much time left okay um, so right.
1: The important stuff, yes. Yeah. Okay. So, this Black should be available in most bookshops, especially if you are kind of London-based. Gaze the Word is a great place to buy it because they've been very, very supportive. Um, I think it's on... You can buy it directly from Cipher Press's website. Yeah,
0: that's how I bought my book, everybody. That's how I bought my <laughs> copy.
1: Which is Cipher, C-I-P-H-E-R. And... You can buy it from Waterstones online or in a Waterstones, you can buy it from Foils, Foils Chair and Cross, especially, again, has been very supportive of it, or kind of lots of queer independent bookshops will stock it. Um, Mm -hmm. You can buy it from Amazon, but you should probably buy it from all of the other places. Yes. (laughs) yeah exactly well when
0: I do see you next um I would very much like my copy signed if that's okay because only because I can say to other folks that I've met you and uh I know you very well know you personally when you are (laughs) ridiculously famous and a famous novelist and all of that jazz but honestly it's so good to talk to you and it's just great to hear how things are going um yeah but yeah please keep in touch Oh, thank you. Well, please keep in touch with us and thank you so much for coming on today.
1: Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for for listening and, and putting up with me. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank
0: you. <laughs>